Good morning. It's a gift to be with you all today. I want to give a special thank you to Claire, our sister here. Would you please give it up for Claire? She's the worship leader at our church plant, Christ the King Anglican. So she is pulling double duty today, morning and evening. They have evening services. Our worship leader, Aaron Purdy, is at his brother's wedding down in Texas. And Claire graciously stepped in at the last minute. So thank you, sister. Um, Let's pray, because if you couldn't tell from the tone of our Second Timothy passage, it's a real doozy. If you're with us uh, for the first time, we aren't like a super negative church. However, when the Holy Scriptures speak this way, we have to respond. So let's pray that our hearts would be prepared to hear a hard word from our Lord today. Uh, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to us today that by your Holy Spirit, you would show us each ways that we personally are called to repent. Lord, I know my tendency is so quickly to look at how others ought to repent and turn to you. Lord, would the scales fall from our eyes that we might see ourselves rightly as those that are beloved by you, and therefore we have the freedom and the courage to see the sin in our lives for what it is that we might turn from unholiness and turn to a life sacrificially given to you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. As I've already said, you know, there are Sundays that I am skipping into church because I can't wait to share with you what I've learned from the Holy Scriptures that week. A word that drips from my pen like, I don't know, a spring rain right? I just get excited about preaching about the love of God, preaching about the love of the church, preaching about things that excite me so much. However, when you preach through a book of the Bible and you do it faithfully, there are passages that you have to address that you would rather skip over. And sometimes those pile on top of each other. Last week, if you were here, uh, you might have recognized that I was giving you an appeal to be very cautious about what theological leaders you are listening to, what voices have impact in your life. And I gave you an image of how to discern good voices from bad voices. Um, and I hope that uh, many of you recognize what I was really trying to do is get you to spend less time on the internet, if you didn't notice it. Shocker. That's what I was trying to encourage you to do. Uh, I think if Paul was alive today, he'd say the same thing. Uh, but today, Paul just keeps on going. He's got these people that he's fighting in the church of Ephesus or that Timothy's fighting and he's encouraging them to keep going because there continues to be opposition in the church in the last days. So today, let's look at 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9, where we're going to look at three things as usual. First, I want to look at the nature of the last days. What does it mean, you know, the end times? We hear so much about the end times. And maybe you were born in a tradition that that seems like that's all they could talk about was the end times. And you might have noticed Pastor Tim doesn't talk about the end times with his newspaper open. What's up with that? So we're going to talk about what is the nature of the end times. Then second, I want to look at the disastrous consequences of self-love over love of God, which is revealed as sacrificial worship. And then third, I want to give you, a, as a piggyback on last week's sermon, one more 
test that you can give for good teaching and teachers as compared to corrupt teaching and teachers. And that's the question is, do they actually have the power of God in their lives or merely the appearance of the power of God? And it's going to be yet another appeal to get off the internet and into real people's lives. So if you would turn with me to 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9, uh, which is which is something. So let's read it. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sin and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind, disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all, as was of those two men." First, let's look at the nature of the end times. First one says, but understand this, that in the last days, in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Now, as I said, many of you were raised in traditions that view the last days or what might be called the end times as, a, as an event on the horizon. It's a future event that is maybe characterized by a great tribulation and a rapture that maybe happens, or maybe your church said that you had to go through the tribulation, and then there will be this thing called the millennium in which Jesus kind of comes back and then psychs us out, leaves for a thousand years and comes back again. That's what's historically called, historically, because it's not actually very historical, it's called dispensationalism. And it's taught many people to read the Bible with their newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other, always looking at this moment in which the end times might occur. And sadly, I'm seeing this really rampant right now with this tragic war occurring in Israel. This tragic war, which ought to lead Christians to prayer. This tragic war that should show us that anti-Semitism is still real as a terrorist organization called Hamas killed over a thousand Jews last week and should show us that we need to be praying because this same organization is very comfortable putting women and children as barriers in front of them and there are going to be a lot of dead people in the coming weeks. This should lead us to prayer that we still live in a world marked by the tragedy and grief of war. But so often what I'm seeing right now is Christians are viewing this simply through the lens of end time prophecies, whether or not this marks an indication of whether or not Christ will return soon. But let me tell you something. One, I know many of you were raised as a sensationalist, and so it's near and dear to your heart, so I'm going to be very careful to not just completely belittle it, but it's very hard for me not to. It is a completely ahistorical position, largely built upon the, this, the 1909 Schofield Reference Bible, and no Christian ever believed it. 
prior to the latter 19th century. We have been living in the end times for 2,000 years according to the Holy Scriptures. We have been in the last days for 2,000 years. It is not a moment that will come. It is a moment that we have been in since the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our passage today, Paul does not talk about some future moment. He is talking about the present moment of the last days. In Acts chapter 2, verses 16 through 21, this fulfillment, it's viewed as a fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, 28 through 29. If you don't know, Joel's an Old Testament prophetic book. And the New Testament writers saw that the fulfillment of Joel was happening in the formation of the church. And this is what Acts chapter 2 says. In the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. What do we see here? That is the age of the church. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. What do we see here? The end times is not some future date. Rather, the end times is the entire age of the church. We have been living in what is called the millennium, in which Christ has been raised from the dead, breathed forth his spirit upon the church, that he might reach the very ends of the earth as his gospel message goes forth. And yes, he tells us that we are called to be ever vigilant and faithful to await his second coming. But there will simply be one second coming that is ahead of us, that we will not know the time. But these last days have been (laughs) the entire age of the church. So again, I don't want to diminish anyone else's theological tradition or say that these are not good Christians and people that love their Bibles. Because if anything, the Schofield Reference Bible taught people to love their Bibles and take it seriously. But that's not how the church has ever read the Holy Scriptures. And we ought to take that seriously. So, what do we see about the end times? They are marked by opposition to the gospel. We do not live in a uniquely difficult time. I know we all believe that and we all think that. We all think this is a uniquely terrible time in the history of the church. Well, it is maybe for some of us in Littleton, Colorado, or various parts of America or the West, but it's a great time to be a Christian in other parts of the world when they were facing persecution just 30 to 40 years ago. The church has been opposed since its foundation, and therefore the church has always been called to a vigilant awareness that even in our own souls and in the world outside of us, there will be opposition to the gospel. And that starts in my heart, that starts in your heart, and it continues to move into the church by a world that opposes the reign of Jesus. We have been in the last times for 2,000 years. So my plea for you is to pray for the situation in Israel. 
but to not open up your Bibles and, and start f- trying to find a way and triangulate, is this an end-time prophecy? Now, what does it look like when the world opposes the church? And what does it look like when it bubbles up even from within the church? This is what we see this long list of sins that if we're honest, all of us can see ourselves in them. I can see myself. I hope you can see yourself. And here's what I bet. You all can see somebody else in them. (laughs) But I hope here just a moment, we can maybe distill it down for how we can understand this passage. Okay, look, look at it with me. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. What you'll notice is that Paul bookends this laundry list of destructive habits in actions with loves. It's a lover of self as opposed to lovers of God. Lovers of self as opposed to lovers of God. For people will be lovers of self. And then he goes into this laundry list. What do we see? That began, you know, with Adam and Eve wanting their own way, wanting their own authority that they might be like God. Sin flows out of love of self over love of God. What is love of money if not the desire to gratify your desires, right? Money gives you power to do what you want so you can love yourself. Pride is just the love of self above all else. Arrogance is the love of your own reputation. Abusive behavior. You know, people in my experience don't just engage in abusive behavior just for the sake of it. I mean, some sociopaths do, but the average person doesn't. What do they do it for? They have a self-justification that is normally self-protective, and therefore I have to abuse somebody else to protect myself, which is still ultimately self-love disobedience to parents, right? It's my parents are not going to be the authority of my life. Ingratitude, no one values me enough, so no gift will ever satisfy me. Unholiness, which is the placement of yourself as the judge of right and wrong over God's moral standards. I could go on and on on all of these, but you get the gist. All of these can be boiled down to the love of self over the love of God. Some of you know that I love uh, a Russian filmmaker named Andrei Tarkovsky. Has anyone ever seen an Andrei Tarkovsky movie? They're weird, okay? You have to treat them like a chapter book. I recommend watching them in 20 to 30 minute increments because you cannot watch the whole thing. I can't watch the whole thing. Uh, but he, he's, he's this great Soviet filmmaker who is also devoutly Russian Orthodox. He loved the Lord Jesus Christ. He had a passion for the glory of God, and he wanted to reveal God's glory through film, even in a very dark age in human history. I mean, he's making films in Russia during the Soviet Union, right? And his films grapple with the nature of time, beauty, God, and memory. So, so much of his movies are just these oddly pieced together scenes that remind you a lot of what a memory actually feels like. 
Is it real? Is it not real? Are you actually constructing the memory or is it actually a recollection of historical events? I noticed how sometimes my memories change over time to be more what I want them to be. He's grappling with all of those things. But very rarely does a great artist write a book, but Andre Tarkovsky did. So you actually get to hear his philosophy of filmmaking a bit. And I think it actually has a great deal to do with this passage here today. Because what he says is modern films are garbage because they can only wrestle with self-actualization. They only recognize that this is an inherently self-expressive venture, which is ultimately a love of self, rather than how he views art, which is inherently sacrificial and a gift given to God, who is the source of all beauty, and a gift given to his world. This is what he says. Art is born and takes hold wherever there is a timeless and insatiable longing for the spiritual, for the ideal, that longing which draws people to art. Modern art has taken a wrong turn in abandoning the search for the meaning of existence in order to affirm the value of the individual for its own sake. What purports to be art begins to look like an eccentric occupation for suspect characters who maintain that, that any personalized action is of intrinsic value simply as a display of self-will. Uh, what's that Woody guy's name? That's his movies, right? They're not good. Um, but in artistic creation, the personality does not assert itself. It serves another higher and communal idea. The artist is always a servant and is perpetually trying to pay for the gift that has been given to them as if by a miracle. Modern man, however, does not want to make any sacrifice, even though true affirmation of self can only be expressed in sacrifice. We are gradually forgetting about this and at the same time, inevitably losing all sense of our human calling. Okay, what's Tarkovsky saying there? To be human is inherently to be one that is so in love with God, the source of beauty, the source of goodness, the source of all that is, that we are a very living sacrifice to him and a living sacrifice given for his world. The Apostle Paul says exactly this in Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you, Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. My concern is this type of language has all but evaporated from our vocabulary. Rather, service to God has very quickly become a mode of self-expression, of self-actualization, this, okay, I'm about to tread into some territory that can very easily be misunderstood. I'm not preaching that burnout isn't real. I'm not saying that self-care isn't important. I think it is very important. I just went on a sabbatical for goodness sakes, okay? But here's what, I'm, what I see and what I'm concerned by. Is self-sacrifice has become an image that is almost intolerable even in our language of discipleship. We talk far more about self-care than self-sacrifice. 
You know, when I, the average tenure of a pastor is roughly five years. That means the average pastor quits after five years. So what I've seen is there's been a, a, a good desire to say, let's go help these guys not burn out by focusing on boundaries and self-care. And here's what I'm experiencing. That's not actually helping pastors not burn out. They're actually just getting really distant from other people and unwilling to engage their pain. And then they burn out because they actually lack purpose. Okay? We were called to, yes, rest. We are called to rest. I'm not saying self-care is not important. But the image that we see all over scripture and the image that humanity has understood up until very recently is that we are called to be a living sacrifice to God, motivated by love, not motivated by guilt, not motivated by obligation, not motivated by an unhealthy form of fear, but motivated by love. You know, I read a ton of World War I books when I was on sabbatical. I just fell in love with this insane moment in human history, right? It's so tragic. But what compelled people, young men, to go off and fight their love of their country? I, our church has a unique calling. Ladies of our church have a unique calling. We have a lot of babies in our church, if you haven't noticed. What is the heart of motherhood? It's this noble, self-sacrificial calling that is compelled by the love of another, that you are willing to put your life on the line, sacrifice your desires, sacrifice your potential, sacrifice all that you want for the sake of this one that has captured your heart and your life. And brothers and sisters, if we truly see the gospel for what it is, that our Lord Jesus Christ died for us to rescue us from eternal separation from God, that our God loved us so much that he not only redeemed us, but brought us as near to him as we can possibly get as he has brought us into the very life of the Trinity by wrapping us in the righteousness of his son. If we know that when the father looks upon us, he smiles instead of frowns because of the work of Jesus Christ, does that not move our hearts to love? in self-sacrificial service to God and his people is only properly motivated by love. And my concern is that we have lost an image of this great noble calling of self-sacrificial love to God. And we are spiraling even in our discipleship into a devolving of self-love that we think will lead to healing, but actually leads to our ruin. Brothers and sisters, I'm not saying that self-care is unimportant, that, that rest is unimportant, but we are called to love God above all else. And that often looks like self-sacrificial love. Where in your life is he calling you to this kind of love? Now, I told you it was a doozy. I got one more section that I have three minutes to preach. So let's keep going. Look at verse five. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people 
For among them are those who creep into households and, and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all and was that of those to men. What we see here is an interesting example. I don't know why Paul is talking about these, these ladies that are being carried off. There must be some literal scenario he's speaking about here, but there are figures in the church that are leading people astray. We just talked about this last week. And he likens them to these two people, Janus and Jambres. Now, you might notice Janus and Jambres, he, he talks about them in the time of Moses, but if you actually open up your Bibles, you're never going to find them. Do you know who they are? They're the two magicians that did battle with Moses. And they're just called two magicians in the Old Testament, but the Jewish oral tradition named them as Janus and Jambres. Now, if you know the Apostle Paul, the dude went to Harvard of the Old Testament, okay? He knew everything about the Old Testament. So he's drawing a parallel here between, you know, these two guys that looked powerful, that in the eyes of Pharaoh had all of this ability to do various things, but they were revealed to be imposters when Moses showed up and more importantly, Yahweh showed up to deliver his people. That's who those two people are. So they have this appearance of power, this appearance of godliness, but they don't have the power of godliness in their life. As I said earlier in my sermon, I, I'm, I'm wanting to encourage you to be careful with the voices in your life. Because like no other time in church history, we have so many voices, right? Uh, the printing press would blush with the capacity for the internet to get voices onto your phones and into your minds and your hearts. And so like never before, we need to be discerning about who we listen to. And here's, here's something I want to encourage you. What we see here is a differentiation between what appears to be godliness and what actually is godliness. What appears to be a word from God and what is actually grounded in God's power. I want to encourage you that there are great voices out there. There are books that are worth reading. But the blogger you really like, if you don't know them, you don't actually know their character. Have you ever thought of that? <laughs> if you don't know them, you don't actually know their character. What grieves me is so many people today, and I'm, I'm one of them, have had leaders of the church wildly disappoint us, right? And they're normally leaders of the church that you've never met, ones you haven't sat in the same room as. And I'm privileged enough to sometimes get to go to pastor's conferences where I, where I get to meet these people that are really good at writing, book, writing books. And I think, I'm not going to read your books anymore because I've met you. <laughs> and that's, you know, and I pray that my, that, pray for me. Pray that, that the Lord carries my character and that I pursue active holiness in him. But here's what I want to encourage you. To have the main voices in your life be people that are actually in your life so that you can discern are they people who merely appear to have godliness in their publications or actively have godliness in their lives? 
Is it actually a voice that you have seen suffer with those who suffer and love those that they disagree with and serve the marginalized and actually be the hands and feet of Jesus in the lives of others? This is yet another appeal for an embodied life where you actually are engaged in the real life world with others because it's so easy to be duped by those that appear to have godliness but lack its power. And I say this again and again because I, I recognize two things. I recognize that you guys do have many other voices other than mine in your life. And that's a good thing. Um, but I also want to encourage you to just be discerning about what those voices are. Not that I need to be the only voice. I, I hope I'm not the only voice in your life. I pray to the Lord I'm not the only voice in your life because I will die one day or move, okay? You need other voices. But please, please, brothers and sisters, be discerning by the Spirit about the voices that have power in your life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you in your grace have established your church that while the church has been besieged for 2,000 years, if we were in the church of Ephesus and saw all the stuff that Paul is railing against, we would say, Lord, this thing is never going to work. Come back soon. And yet here we are. Thank you that the gates of hell will not prevail against your work through your church by your Holy Spirit. Lord, would you give us eyes to discern truth from lies, goodness from evil, and Lord, would you lead our hearts to a self-sacrificial love of you that is motivated by your overwhelming love for us. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.